Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. Well, I'm here with Eric Rasmussen, and he's from Making Tracks, which is based in Salt Lake City. And I met Eric at a coyote conference for earth-based educators that was sort of sponsored by a lot of the West Coast wilderness bushcraft slash nature education educators conference. I guess that's what it was. And, you know, we, we ended up going there. We stayed in this huge barn that was on like a, it was in April. It was like rainy. It was really cold. I ended up getting a really bad, really bad cold during that time. But we did end up spending a lot of time just sitting around the fire, staying warm and having really good conversations. There was a nice, nice group of people there. The mountains were all green and the hills were beautiful. And I really, really enjoyed meeting you, Eric. So super happy to be talking with you on the podcast here. So thanks a lot for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm happy to do it. Um, if I remember right, that barn had some of its main support beams rotted away too. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> The whole, the whole, every I single time, cringe you every time there. you looked at them. <laughs> yeah, there was like a big split in one of them, and that was like kind of scabbed together with a couple two by fours. And I remember just going like, "Oh man, I should have just brought my timber framing tools." And I thought, "Yeah, we we might as well be outside around the campfire because otherwise, yeah, bad things could happen." Yeah, no, that was really a fun weekend. The food was really good too. I remember that. That was really it was right. Yeah, people. Yeah. yeah, the food was good there. Haven't been back since though. I mean, you know how it is with with doing skills and trying to meet other skills people. That's why we started the gatherings. It's hard yes. to get out and meet others like us. Absolutely. Well, and and while I was there, I remember you had been talking and did a a, a session at there at that where you were talking about creating standards for wilderness educators. I learned through that that you had been studying with Rick Barry and his programs out in Northern California for a good amount of time, I think. So you kind of come from that lineage of, of wilderness skills and learning and to some degree. And that was, it was really just nice to see you the kind of like second generation moving forward. And, and since then you've been doing a lot of good things. So yeah. Tell me a little bit about what was that like in the way when you were as a kid, I, I was the one who had like a bug collection, a leaf collection, like was always outside, just like three or five years old still, right? Yeah. And my mom saw that and she, we were signing up for summer camps when you were when I was seven and she literally had to drag me kicking and screaming to this final booth to sign me up for a final summer camp. And it ended up being the, the Rikus Center Nature Awareness, you know, summer camp booth. And I went there one time, loved it. She ended up signing me up for all the programs, but she wouldn't let me go to the homeschool programs. So I had to somehow figure out how to do this nature stuff while going to public school. Right. That was challenging. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I just did that in all, almost all my free time. Like after sports and school, I'd, I'd be doing that kind of stuff. So like bow drill at my house on my mom's carpet, all that, you know, kind of <laughs> yeah. deer, deer hides in the backyard that the dog was chewing on. By the time I got into high school, yeah, the Rikers Center started up some, you know, cross-pollinization programs with Rick at 4E's and um, the, uh, oh, the one in Santa Barbara, Wilderness Youth Project, and a couple others. And we started doing this gathering that kind of mimicked uh, scout class at the tracker school. So by the time I was a teenager, I'd already slept in scout pits. I'd already, you know, camoed myself up and gone without sleep for four days 
fireworks are my friends, all that kind of stuff. And it ended up, it ended up, I think that ended up being one of the, the better programs that I was, that, that I was in my life because Rick was fresh out of tracker school caretaker role at that, that point. So he was on it. And then, yeah, I ended up doing some work with, with Rick up North. And when I went, I went, ended up going to college for parks and rec. Right. Cause I figured there's no point in getting a degree in something I'm already, I've already been doing for 10, 15 years. Let's round myself out a little bit. And I remember applying to colleges, got into all the all the schools that had really good outdoor programs, so like University of Indiana, New Hampshire, Idaho, um, and then Utah. But everyone took their kids to Utah. Oh, and Humboldt. That was another fun one. Right. And like, OK, well, we'll just go to Utah. They've got a good business school so I can I can get, you know, a minor in, in entrepreneurship while I do the Parks and Rec thing. And that ended up being just as much fun as the survival skills for me. Yeah, so I, I owe Rick and, and my other mentors a lot, you know, because they learned from John, who learned from Tom, and, and they taught me to just pull from everywhere I could to see what works and what doesn't work. And that's how I've I've been learning on that prove me right or prove me wrong basis for a long time. And that's what I use with my students. Yeah, that's like a that's like a code or a key axiom that Tom Brown would always say, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to teach you a bunch of things, but, you know, pr- uh, don't just believe it blindly, prove it for yourself, see what works for you. He wasn't yeah. necessarily saying, oh, I may be lying to you, so check and see if I'm lying to you. He's more saying, like, whatever I'm sharing may or may not work for you in your situation, and so you may have to adapt. So he was kind of, like, saying it. Yeah. As usual, Tom always liked to say, like, three things every time he'd say one. At time. once. Oh, gosh, yeah. It, I took it in, like, the way of, like, okay, this is this is not only a challenge, but there's a possibility that he's wrong and I'm going to be the one. Because I like being right, you know? Yeah, <laughs> Who doesn't? Exactly. But, man, that set me on some searches that have lasted years. So, like, the, the two he gave, gives people in the standard class was find me two things in nature that are the same. Yeah. And find me something that's flat. And, you know, the idea is that you're trying to search for these judges, these ultimate things, and you end up learning a whole bunch of stuff along the way. But I think I came pretty close to a couple of these. So after about a year of actually searching for physical things in nature that are the same, you know, pebbles, leaves, what have you, I was like, okay, even even things that taxonomically are in the same category are still slightly different, right? right. Veins on a dragonfly, on, on two, two, the same species of dragonfly can be different per individual. So I started looking at this from a different perspective. And get all the way down to the periodic table of the elements. They are there because they are the same throughout the universe. And I was like, okay, every hydrogen atom is going to look the same. Because that's what a hydrogen atom is. So I'm like, okay, I found a bunch of stuff that's all the same. Done. That took me like seven years to get there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the beautiful thing is that you can hold that question. You know, that you held that question in some part of you that was you know, either subconsciously or at different times popping out and going, Hey, let's revisit that, which is, which is really cool. Right. And that was a skill that I got that I, I, it was a skill, but it was also just that natural curiosity that I had, which is what kept me going when I was being raised by a bunch of, you know, coyote mentors or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. They would point me in the direction of the answer and then not give me the answer. Like, but the other one really quick, cause this is, this is kind of funny. Searching for a flat object after the advanced tracking and awareness class seems so impossible. And I would always be getting down like airport floors, like in the middle of a classroom, like, is this actually flat? And I'd be like, Dang, it's not. The linoleum has curves or so there's dust or whatever. And then finally, I heard a 
soundbite from Neil deGrasse Tyson. This was like a year ago. And he was describing how flat the earth is, where he took the deepest part of the crust, the Mariana Trench, and the highest part of the crust, uh, Everest, which are like seven miles apart or something like that. But seven miles in the context of the circumference of the earth is nothing, which means that if you shrunk the earth down, it is smoother, flatter than any cue ball ever machined. And I'm like, there it is. That's the answer. That is the the flattest substance. Because then I'm just changing the context of the answer. And as you learn when you're tracking, context determines all meaning. So bam, done, licked. (laughs) I just needed something to let me let go of that question. When I I got to college, I had a a professor, Kathy, who's the head of the Los Angeles Studios at at the University of Utah. And she always was really challenging me because I was coming into this program not really caring about being an entrepreneur, but caring about survival skills, right? And she kind of saw in me that I had all the characteristics of an entrepreneur, even if I didn't care about the business side of things. And she's like, look for problems in the industry. Like you've been doing this your whole life. What's wrong with it? And I was like, oh, there's a list. Um, exactly. You know. <laughs> okay, buckle up, right? Buckle up. Let's go. So, Engage four-wheel drive. Right, yeah. No, I, I wrote out that list and she's like, great, you need to validate those problems. So that's when I started going, you know, back to all of my old schools, back to schools I hadn't been before, researching other schools, reaching out to other educators, going to that conference and checking like, hey, are these problems that we actually have? Or is this, am I just picky? Am I just like stuck up and whatever? Like, do I have this wrong? And most of the problems were there. And I've had to learn this lesson over and over again in my life. Just because there's a problem doesn't mean people want it solved, which drives me crazy. And that conference we met at was really eye-opening to me because it was, one, I demonstrated some of the problems that are in the industry with with people who have, you know, not savory personalities. But it also told me like, yeah, there's already enough barriers to entry with learning these skills. They don't want more barriers. People don't want more barriers to entry for this. So I'm like, okay, they want this to be made as easy as possible. Right. Let's go that route. And... If, if you heard one message about these skills in the world, what's the message that you hear? You mean for like uh, the message of the skills? Of yeah. Doing like wilderness skills or nature. Uh, nature yeah. What's the main message we always hear? Well, it, I guess it kind of depends on who your teacher is. You know, like some of my teachers would say, you know, to become one with everything is like the final goal. And then others are the message of it is like, you know, if you're a wilderness person, then you need to know all the skills in order to be able to master everything so that you could survive, even if you didn't have anyone, you know, so but it's what's like, the you know, everything? What's the why behind both of those? Yeah, that's a good question. I think about this, right? Because it's that what dis mean question. Yeah. And people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. So I'm like, okay, why are you guys telling me all of this? And the answer I got back was, was always fear based for one. Yeah. And and two, it was usually centered around loss. So either we're our, we're going to lose our civilization, and these skills will become necessary. Yes. Um, or we're losing these skills, right? And yeah. that was interesting to me, because you know, growing up around certain communities, they start to take a real like biblical approach to some of the skills and way of doing things. And I'm like, I'm I'm not that religious of a person. Sure, I'm spiritual or whatever you call it, but I was like, let's let's look at this for a minute. If let's say humans uh, died, like we all just died out, 
and another bipedal species, or maybe not even bipedal, but another mammalian species starts to dominate the earth. And they have similar sensory processing to us, which a lot of animals do, like down to lobsters. All of the survival skills that we think are going to be lost are going to come back. Right. Just the way they were. They're hardwired in, right? You still need oxygen and fire and and, oxygen friction and fuel, um, heat and fuel to make fire. So that's still going to come back the same way it is. Rocks are still going to break the same way. Wood is still going to carve the same way. Ceramics are still going to heat the same way. So this isn't something intrinsic about us was my first realization. And I'm like, okay, well then why, why are we going to lose this? Why is this important for us? I'm like, Oh, the skills are the language of the, the language the earth uses to speak to us. And it's not that we're going to lose the skills. It's that we are going to lose the ability to listen to her. Right. Yes. And not only that, but the amount of time it has taken us to to master these skills right to the point where we've now moved past them has been hundreds of thousands of years so if we lose these skills all that's going to waste and now we're moving forward without the knowledge of what makes us human right that is a much more terrifying thought to me than the thought of the apocalypse um in the middle of that too you know yes leaving out climate change and global warming we're kind of in this situation where, I mean, this happened for me actually about seven or eight years ago where I just sort of sat, I think it was around the time of the, the Gulf oil spill. And I remember thinking like, you know, here we have in my lifetime, it's, there's been this whole idea of like, you know, environmental education. We got to teach people. We got to like teach everyone what's going on. And then we have, you know, we had the Exxon Valdez up in Alaska and then we had this oil spill again and, you know, a big, a, a giant disaster. And I remember just going like, whatever we're doing, it's not enough. Like whatever, whatever we're teaching in schools to kids, if they get like five days at a nature center, that is not enough to make a difference to change people to understand and and make the the generational changes that we need to make. And I just said, I'm, you know, even though I'm doing this wilderness stuff, I think I had estimated that I was, I had taught over 13,000 people over my 30 years of doing this. I thought, even if I have 13,000 people, which sounds like a big number, but it's really not when you compare it to the 79 million kids that are in school in America right now. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's an infant, you know, it's kind of like, uh, it's fractional. It's a fractional thing, just like the circumference of the earth. And so I'm kind of in that same boat of saying like, yeah, we have to do something different at a much larger scale. And we need to, like, this is not me just teaching people, you know, about tracking or bow drill isn't quite enough, you know, to, you know, however many thousand people I might teach in a year is not enough to fundamentally change the direction of what we're doing because we've lost that core those you know the kind of parameters that our, our ancient ancestors had which was like oh if we kill all the buffalo we will die therefore we will yeah we will, we will then kind of control our destiny and and work and live alongside the natural barriers and so do you think we've you know, lost that or do you think we've just distanced ourselves from it because well, like i think yeah. it's just instead yeah. of us taking the responsibility for our actions we just shut that off onto right. some other continent or to some as as Americans to some other people. Those right. those effects are still going to get us. It's just a little bit more delayed than it used to be because 
we're we're no longer at the precipice of survival. We now have all these luxuries. Yeah, it's easy to forget the again. You know, like when I think of doing will practicing nature and wilderness skills, and just being close to nature, I do think a lot about the fact that our bodies and our minds are ultimately adapted to living close to the earth. So therefore, even though we've had whatever, 10,000 years of uh, civilization, so to speak, mm -hmm. even 300 years ago, people were fundamentally much closer to nature because oh, yeah. we were traveling by, by horses and we didn't have sawmills. Everything was all hand tools and we were making everything. Everything was handmade in our world. Now it's like automated. Almost everything we have is actually produced by machinery and engineering right. and so forth. So if you think about that and you go, okay, so what is it like to then suddenly be cut off from 90% of what originally made us human and how we interacted with the world? All of that suddenly is irrelevant in a lot of ways. Like it's irrelevant whether you can hear it, tell the difference between a cardinal and a chickadee. It's irrelevant whether you can track animals. You know, in terms of how civilization is, it, you're no longer required to do a whole lot of anything. Right. Yeah. And the then, need, the need yeah. isn't as strong. So the form's not going to follow. And and then you have the mental aspect of this whole thing, which is that's what we're living in right now is this sort of, because our, yeah. because we didn't go through these developmental stages, there's these giant gaps that we feel inside that. Emotionally are, and intellectually, like. Exactly. You, some You start to learn how to, you start to forget how to think, forget like what emotion, what tool emotions play in survival. Right. That's, Problem that's a solving. big one. Yeah. So what happens is that like right now we're sitting in a, in a world where, where there's just, I don't know. I, I don't know what the percentage is, but I would say it's fairly high that there's just an incredible amount of people across the spectrum who are struggling with mental illness. And mm -hmm. you know, when I think of that, I don't mean just like that they're crazy, but more just like depression, anxiety, suicidal right. thoughts, bipolar, where because we have been cut off, there, there's that feeling of something's missing in my life. I've got all my Netflix and my streaming channels. I got my laptop. I'm comfortable. I can get food delivered by DoorDash. I can get an Uber. I don't even need a car. And yet I have this massive feeling that I'm missing out, that, I, that there's a connection of something that's just not there. Right. And so then, right. I, you know, I'm going to be like, all right, I need to I need to have a drink. I need to have, I need to get high. I need to, I need to be in a draw, a lot of drama, like whatever it is, it's like, it feels like you're, you're struggling. And I always kind of come back and think like, I don't think you can fix it. I don't know. I don't think there's enough pills in the world to fix what is, what's broken at a fundamental level of developmentally. And when you miss you the got, windows, you're, you're in trouble. You got to pick the red or the blue pill. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. No. And that's, I, so these are these are the trains of thought that I always go down, right? And I'm like, okay, we've got to make it so that there's a different a different possibility is yeah. is where my head goes, you know. As the people who the 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 educators who are on the the edge of survival and and the modern experience, this is where we we have to dance with. And one of the things I realized, I did the same math that you did. I calculated how many people I can teach in a year, and then put that across my life. And depending on how fast you can scale a business, usually people are teaching anywhere from like one to 200 people a year. Multiply that by the number of days in the year, given vacations, all that stuff. And it's not a lot of people, no. even over the course of your life. It's not. So the two ways you can do that is, okay, create as many forest educators as possible, 
right? A, mm -hmm. which even if you did that still doesn't take into effect that the market has a cap on how many forest educators that there can be because there's only so much demand for it. Or two, you have to change how these skills are being preserved and delivered. Right. So there is a shift that happened when YouTube hit off. There's a whole section of YouTube that is now wilderness skills to the point where they've now been recycling content for the last five or 10 years. It's all the same stuff. It's all fire. It's all bows. It's all tools. It's, it's all the same thing. I'm like, okay, that space is now crowded and changing. There's also, there's also a whole bunch of survival products out there now that didn't used to be there, right? Different types of gear and, and right, multi-tools right. and stuff like that. That didn't used to be there. So there, this is picking up. It's like, how are we going to preserve this in a way? Because videos are great. You can reach a million people with a video. Sure. But you miss out on a lot of essential experiences that you would have in a class. So I think no matter what, you're going to always need to go back. You know, even if you're learning from videos, you have to go back and learn from a person in some books. And then you're going to have to test this in nature at some point. Like you have to go back just like in, in when you're studying the skills. If you learn how to use a knife, great. But you then have to go and learn how to use stone tools and bone tools just to give you context of why the knife is good. So I keep looking at what's the next thing coming right? What, how can we, how can we reach even more people with this in a meaningful way without sacrificing quality? And that's when I heard of chat GPT. Okay. About yeah. th three months into this thing's existence, it was still chat GPT, like one or two. I asked it, teach me how to do a bow drill fire. It gave me two pages of directions. I have heard humans give worse instruction on how to do a bow drill fire many, many times. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I was like, okay, I'm getting stuck. How do I make the fireboard? I'm getting stuck. It gave me a subset of instructions on how to select wood for a fireboard and how to carve the notch and, you know, making sure, sure to do the, the spindle first. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. You put this, this mind in a mechanical body and it's got my job, right? Yeah. And I'm like, and then, so then I tried the same thing with, with rocks, with foot. I'm like, can you give me instructions on how to make an arrowhead? Part of its instructions included learning to speak the language of the stone. Right, right. And when I questioned it, what do you mean by speaking the language of the stone? It went into a almost metaphysical description of the Hertzian cone and how that works and how that functions and how energy travels through things. And I'm like, there's yeah. my job. Right. And I'm like, okay, hold on, hold on. There's got to be ways we can we can work with this. And that's what we're experimenting with with now. But rewinding just a little bit, you said you said you were considering all this what year? 2007, did you say? Yes, seven or eight years ago. Okay, seven or eight years ago. Um, that's more than like 2015, somewhere around there. I can't hold numbers in my head. After that Coyote conference, when I got that feedback that like people wanted this to be as easy as possible, like no barriers to entry, even though I'm looking at this from like, actually, the more we can, the more standardization, the more criteria we can make for this, the easier it is to communicate it to the outside world right? Right. to get more people on board. I was like, no, that's not going to work. The people don't want that. They want it to be as easy as possible. So well, you I know, started talking about the instructors, you know, like, cause you yeah. have instructors and business owners, entrepreneurs, what do they want? And that their feedback was a certain thing of, there was a lot of pushback to that. Yeah. Whereas, and it wasn't just that conference too. And they, and they also had, they also don't have like most wilderness people don't have a lot of money because it's not lucrative. Right. So therefore they were like, well, if you, if you add another training to become certified at whatever, $800 or a thousand dollars, that just puts it out of reach. And then suddenly now they're, they're like, yeah, now I'm getting, now, I, now I've got to be certified. And is that going to actually translate to me getting more students? 
And again, all of this for me kind of ended in thinking there isn't, there just isn't a huge demand. You know, if you look at the outdoor field in general, you know, that you go to, if you go to REI or mm-hmm. Alpine or Eastern Mountain Sports or something, you know, you have like rock climbing and canoeing and backpacking and skiing and all. Those are all right. a thousand times more popular and have more people doing it than, than like there just isn't the demand. And even with all the wilderness uh, survival shows alone, naked and afraid, you know, survivor man, uh, you know, survivor on TV, even right. all of that, this, the demand still, most people don't really want to go out in the woods and sleep in a, in a pile of leaves and get ticks and so work with I rock. looked at that. I, I, I saw that same pattern that you saw. And then did you ever ask why that was though? Like why rock climbing? Cause that was my degree, right? Is, is parks and sure. rec. And I was <laughs> trying to figure out why is this so much more popular than survival skills when survival skills has clearly been around longer. Right. And the answer came down to messaging and branding. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Recreation came in as a way to improve yourself as a person, right? With Knowles and Outward Bound. It's like, hey, you and your, or actually even before that, when the automobile was invented, it's like, hey, you can go out and recreate, drive your car out into the woods, your family gets closer, right? right. Then the messaging was, oh, well, you can send your kids to us and your kids will get close, get, you know, know be more confident in themselves. Whereas the messaging with survival skills is always, you need to know this or you're going to die. Like, which would you rather do? I mean, that's easy. Absolutely. And so it's part of, I think the demand is there, but it's stuff that they don't, people don't know they don't know it. And so our messaging has to be able to overcome that. But as instructors, we like to communicate at the level we're comfortable with, not the level that people want to hear us with. So that's a huge thing that, that the industry needs to work on as a whole. We've been really trying to change our, our branding and our messaging there, which is difficult, but paired with that, because you're right, they don't want more barriers to entry. They it's it, There's not as much money. There, there is money in it now. There wasn't as much back then. It's a big enough market at this point that there's money in it. You just have to know how to realize where it is and what you need to do to get it. But I was like, okay, so the feedback is they want to make, we want, we need to make this easier for them, right? No, yeah. How can we make this easier? And I, I looked at the patterns. I was like, oh, people just learn these skills, start their own school, and then can't afford to pay instructors. The instructors get bored. They start their own school, can't afford to pay their instructors, like keeps going. I'm like, okay, there we don't we don't need to have our own school anymore. We don't need a location anymore. We can do this on on BLM land, on private land, whatever. What outdoor people need is they need software and administrative support. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to start my own school. This is going to suck, but I'm not going to do it. Right. What what we did instead is we started developing software that you can literally, we've, we've got it down to where you can go into your, go to the bathroom, start taking a poop, get, get your phone out, post a course before you're done. That's how quick and easy it is now. If you're, if you're on our team, you get the, you know, financial insurance liability all of the administrative support you need, some through the software, some through us. And it's so easy to post a class. It's You can create it in no time at all. And it's very easy to use. It's not like some of the other softwares out there where it's like you have to learn the UI. It's like, no, you're just getting asked some questions. Your class is up, bam. Right. So we've made it super easy to post classes. And we're, we're about, actually, we're taking on beta testers right now. So when you publish this, if there's anyone who wants to be a beta tester for the software, <laughs> look me up. But we've started just slowly taking on team members who kind of share the vision that that you and I share. It's like, we need to figure out a different way to preserve this. 
we're still teaching, right? We're still, we're still providing those courses, but if we can develop this software and distribute it enough, it's going to make it so easy for anyone who wants to teach an outdoor course to do it. Right. And to, and, and what to, just to clarify for people that are listening, like one of the big problems of, of like a lot of people is, you know, for wilderness educators, forest educators, is that if I, if I post a, uh, something online on my full followers or something, and I go, Hey, I'm going to do a workshop on tracking or height tanning or, you know, coal burn bowl burning or whatever it is, stone tools. The problem often is, is that even if I plan a year in advance and I post it and post it and post it, I may end up with three students and it's not right. enough for me to actually get, yeah, I just, I'll, I'll end up doing it for $200 or $300 for this, you know, two day class. And then financially, it's like, oh, I can't actually make a living doing this because I can't, I can't connect with the people that do want to do it. And right. So, so it's just a, it's not even so much. Um, I mean, when I, you know, I've been doing this 35 years. I mean, it was really difficult to get students 30 years mm-hmm. ago because you had to put flyers up, you know, at the library Print media still. <laughs> yeah. You would just do these things, trying to figure out how to meet with people and people actually scoured, you know, newspapers and they would scour uh, bulletin boards and, and they would look bit, they would be really actively looking. Right. And now it's just a lot trickier because most wilderness people don't know how to use Facebook advertising Facebook ads, they don't know how to do it, or if they know how to do it, it's too expensive uh, to find those phones. Well, and paid ads don't work anymore because of the way Facebook and Instagram hoard their data. I mean, same company, but they hoard their data. So they just get you to pay more for ads that aren't working anyways. We're working with another company. We're one of their beta testers that's designed to solve that problem. It's called a journey, but you'll start seeing that out on our channel soon. It's really cool. But that's that's what I'm saying is, is that it's like, that's one of the biggest problems is, Can you consist a lot of people? I I can't tell you how many wilderness people said, Hey, Ricardo, I, I spent $4,000 getting this beautiful brochure made. I'm going to, I'm, I'm now becoming and starting my own school. And two years later, they're back doing construction because even though they blew a ton of money and thought, Oh, I'll have this, I'll have this really cool you know, brochure and everyone's going to be excited. And then they got crickets. You know, they maybe got that initial first wave of low-hanging fruit of people in the area. And then after that, they just couldn't consistently fill their program. And their business plan was good if they could get 15 people every class or 12 people every class. And so so it's like a a whole thing that's really a difficult model. It's like that model is a little, you know, I've seen that model. People struggle. And then at the same time, there are people that go, oh my gosh, all my programs are filled all the time. And then I'll say, I think like we were, when we were at that coyote conference, I met Dave Scott, Dave Scott's from Austin, Texas. His programs are, are, are doing fantastic because he's in Austin, Texas, which is huge software development, entrepreneurial. There's tons of venture capitalism money there. People are getting paid really well and they want the programs that he's doing. You go a hundred miles in any direction and do that it's going to be crickets you know yeah sorry i'm taking Location. notes you just covered so much that i've been that i've been working with so like yeah um you're yeah you're 100 right on all of this i see these schools pop up and within five years they're gone one of the reasons is the data that they're getting that's telling them to run these classes is bad data 
yes. which is, is yeah, you're if, a numbers you, guy. If, you, if you've ever, well, now I am because I understand the importance of it, but most survivalists, we survive based off of our intuition. We yeah. use our feelings to orient like Jedi. And that's the importance of emotions and intuition and survival, right? That's the key thing is that these are communications and they're going to help you navigate. That doesn't always work in the modern experience, which is why we rely on numbers to run a business. And so if you look at, if you've ever read the mom test, this is a great book. This is what explained it to me, just clear and simple. There's yeah. a difference between someone saying, I would sign up for that and saying, I will sign up for that. Yes, exactly. And so <laughs> most people when they're going to business, especially outdoor schools, is they want to judge what's going to happen in the future. So they ask people, what are you going to do in the future? People don't know. Like yeah. they, they just want right. to not hurt your feelings, right? Yeah. yeah. So what, what we started asking them is, hey, what have you spent your money on in the past and how much did you spend? What programs do you, are your kids currently signed up for and how much are you spending? How much time does that take? That's the data that we use to inform our scheduling and our course creation. Because it's like, oh, they don't want a five-hour class five days a week. They want two hours once a week, right? So bam, right there, right. we solved that thing and it gets more signups. So you've got to pay attention to what the good data is and what the bad data is. And I don't think there's enough people in the skills world who know how to do that because they do it using their emotions, which it's right. just learning the other side of that coin. So there's that problem. Then there's the messaging of it, which we've already talked about. It's it's how do you teach someone what, or how do you let someone know that what you have is going to solve a problem that they have without them not even knowing what it is that you do? Because you can say, oh yeah, this is what we, we, we do the same stuff as they do on a loan, but that's still not, it doesn't compute for them. It's like, no, we we teach, we, we give you experiences that facilitate personal growth and emotional development, whether you're in nature or not. Yeah. And we do this on some of our corporate accounts. It's like, look, we can stay in the office. I can bring these skills. I can bring nature into the office and you're going to feel the presence of, you know, the coyote, the fox, whatever, whatever it is we're learning. You're going to feel that presence here and it's going to stay with you. So there's, there's the messaging. Then there's, and, and collecting good data is part of that messaging on our part. But then you brought up something else. I was looking at the programs I grew up in in California. I'm like, why are these filling when some of the ones in like the Midwest don't fill? Or <clears throat> sure. even with the same messaging, same strategy, why are some failing and some not? And I'm like, oh, there's a location bias. This one of our, I was talking to uh, Dakota Schaefer, one of our instructors. He's like, yeah, it seems like the conservative, the places that have been traditionally conservative, that now have more liberals coming in to live there are where skills things do the best because conservatives already really understand they're still they still hunt they farm traditionally yeah. that's that's their they're they're very into what has worked in the past so right. naturally survival skills is part of that liberals are more like oh like i don't know this stuff because i'm a, i'm a tech person i'm in whatever i want right. my kids to know this i need you to teach them Right. And then you get the perfect combination of both worlds with the economic growth of those areas. And bam, a skills world can finally, you know, run their classes. Because right. right. there's a there's, niche it, there. It, yeah, it's a perfect niche. Econo it's, a, it's a financial or social, social cultural uh, niche that yeah. is that can slide in and thrive. Whereas if you go, you know, if you go to Elko, Nevada, and there's three prospectors and a and a and a casino. Right, it's not gonna you're not gonna do too well. Yeah, and, and it's it's interesting too because who the clients are it really does is different. You know. Yeah. I know people that who work. Uh, I know Jose Gonzalez is a you know trying to work on getting Latinos outdoors 
And he was just saying like, yeah, it's, it's, it can be really challenging because some people will look at their skills and go, yeah, I don't really want to remember. I don't really want to learn the skills to like cross the border as a right. or something like I want yeah, to well, there's... About that and I want to make it in America and I want to be able to take my family yeah. and do well and help everybody out. So there's the cultural aspect of that. And then there's also like the perspective of like, if someone has come out, you know, lifted themselves from their bootstraps out of poverty, it's like, why would I go back to poverty? And I, yeah. I respect that. It's like, yeah, like you, you already have the skills necessary that we teach people. And now they are applying it in real world examples without any safety net to make themselves better. It's like, respect dude. like that works. Okay. Cause you mentioned something briefly that that's important. One of the big indicators when I see a new outdoor school pop up or even like the forest preschools, I'll talk to you like, Hey, how's it going? Like, what do you guys need? What troubles are you having? Like, how can I help? Like, cause I, I'm of the perspective that I want to see as many outdoor schools in my area to the point where I can no longer run my business. Cause then I don't need to do other people are doing what I think needs to be done. So I don't need to do it. I can go do something else. Right. Absolutely. And it's also from a business perspective, it's, it's market validation and it's, it, it helps your branding because now you don't have to overcome the, I don't know. I don't know this. Now it's just, how are you different from the next guy? Oh, way easier for messaging. Right. Right. It's why pizza, it's like, you can have 12 different pizza places in yes. town and, you know, so you've got the brick oven pizza that's like high end. And then you've got, right. You know, and you've got like Domino's and then you've got people, you know, then you've got your authentic New York pizza and everything in between college pizza shop or something. Right. They all have a niche because people can go to whatever, whatever they, whatever place they want to be. And everybody still relates to, oh yeah, we find exactly is important. This is, this has value in our lives. So yeah. And it's the, the one indicator though, I found of whether or not a, a, a school or organization is going to survive is whether or not they know their customer base. So if you ask them, who is your customer? Who's your target market? Who's your clientele? And they say something along the vein of anyone who wants to learn to survive, anyone who wants to connect to nature, anyone who enjoys nature, they're not going to make it more than two to five years because they right. don't understand the demographics and psychographics of the people buying their programs. And that's data that me and my team have spent years capturing. Right, right. Um, yeah. Like, I want to know what toilets they use if they use like toilets, right? Yeah. No, like in our, no, like it's a joke. But like, if you think about people yeah. in the skills world, some people don't go places where there's plumbing. Sure. They're not our target market. And it's things like that small detail really do matter. I would always think, yeah, it's a shame that there's no one out there to provide these things for instructors to help them teach these things. And that's, what making tracks does we're running programs but we're doing it in a way to where the instructor can set their schedule they can teach where they want when they want we'll give them the data that we're seeing is like hey this is working this isn't working these are the problems we've run into the past if we go this route and we're like if you still want to do this let's do it we'll run with it if it doesn't work it's now insanely easy for us to post classes and reschedule classes and take payments because we have the software so that's off the table and we even have a bit of software that takes out the risk of posting a class and not getting enough people, right? So the way that software was doing that before was we're not going to take your money. We're going to build an interest list. And once we have enough people signed up, we'll take your money, right? We don't do that. We actually will take the money and we'll be, and, and on the class description or in our, in our refund policy, it's like, look, if we ever cancel, you get your money refunded. But if we reschedule, you know, if you can't make it, we'll still refund it. But we're going to try and reschedule this if we don't get enough people. And we have an automated system in our software that does that. So it's addressing that margin risk because people don't realize 
if your maximum is 30 and your minimum is 10, even 10 is still not profitable for you. Like you need yeah. to be at that seven to 15 mark even, or 12 to 15 mark. And so it's all these little things that if you're a kid who's raised in the bush or raised with survival skills, even if you go to college, these aren't things they teach at college well anymore. And we're trying to make them as available as possible to outdoor educators because they don't need to live in Utah to teach with us. Yeah. If they want to, you know, slog through building up their, their network, wherever that we can help them with that. We found some shortcuts on how to do that. We found some of the best practices on how to do that. We've been, do you know, have you looked into network effects before? Uh, you mean net, network effects? Is that a, a name of a company or is that? Uh, no, it's, it's a, it's a term used to okay. describe social networks. Basically this was, okay. I went down the rabbit hole, Ricardo. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and guess what I found at the bottom of it. I found nature at the bottom of it. All right. Well, there you go. Which is my favorite thing. <laughs> right. So right. It's, it's like ecology, right. Or whatever. Uh, and it's proof that it's a, a, yeah, it's proof that it, it actually works, right. That it's an actual thing. It's not some made up human thing. There was this German scientist, Ali something, the, the, the data was named after him. He was studying, what was it like prairie dogs in Africa. And he was looking at what makes certain colonies thrive and other ones die. And there's the, there's a graph that's it's called the Ali curve. And it says that if if a population grows too quickly, they're going to die off. If they don't grow quickly enough, they're going to die off because prairie dogs rely on alarm systems to alarm for predators. So if you don't have enough people to alarm for predators, you're all going to die. If you're overpopulated, you're and this is where that one rat study does kind of blow this out of the water. But this is actually nature. It's not a you know made up environment. Right. If you're overpopulated, you get not you get famine and disease. Yeah. So the network effects need to the, the network needs to grow at a steady enough rate that once you reach a certain rate, you break off into another section and keep growing right a different hill. Facebook, Uber and Lyft really push this. Um, all of the, the social media sites are aware of these curves and everything they do with their software is designed to maximize those effects. We've been looking into this and it's like, how do networks work? How do they grow? Why do they fail? And applying that to skill stuff. So anytime I see a skills thing opening, I'm looking at their following. I'm looking at their programs. I'm looking at their data because that's data we can use. And some of them succeed. I'm like, <clears throat> I'm like, great. We're going to try what they did. If they fail, it's like, we're not going to do what they did, especially if that's a pattern. And it's, it, it seems very stale and data-driven, but you know, the results are kind of, you start to speak for themselves after a while. Well, it's interesting. What I find interesting about this is that, you know, like when I first started doing my wilderness skills back in 1984 uh, with Tom Brown, you know, formally, I wouldn't say, I mean, I had a really uh, outdoor youth, in, you know, so right. I was wilderness skills earlier. But when I started studying with Tom Brown, it was really literally like Tom Brown and uh, you know, there was like three other schools, you know, in, in existence, Larry Dean Olson. And then there was mm -hmm. a, a guy, Peter Bigfoot down in Arizona that walked across the Sahara desert or the Sonoran desert, R wonderful people doing things, but all very different, very unique. And then there were a lot of other, you know, like native elders and other people who were teaching that were literally, you know, they didn't write a book. There's no internet. Yeah. You just, you just would never know who, who they were unless you knew a guy or knew somebody and networking. I mean, it's hard for people to even imagine what life was like pre-internet. Like it just oh was completely different. It, it was, it was a whole different thing. So like when I found out that I met Tom Brown and 
through his books and everything, I was just like, this is it. This is the vein that I'm going to follow because I don't really mm -hmm. have any alternatives. And then slowly there became more programs kind of popping up. The network grew. Successful. <clears throat> and some survived by just taking a very small number of people and just doing the same thing year after year. Yeah. So people solved, you know, tried to expand and sometimes they expand too fast or it's just been a really, I mean, this is like, this whole interview is really about like the history of, you know, how, how do we as human beings, you know, and as these, as these educators, how do we evolve to meet this, you know, but the original desire to go to these wilderness schools back then, I feel like was different than the students that are showing up now, like what their motivation is, what they're looking for. Yeah. And, and well, what's, really interesting i've noticed is that like the majority of the people working in forest schools seems to be that they are teachers who don't who have been working in regular modern education who are like i can't do that anymore i'm going to become a forest educator work in a forest school and work in that model like they they're not necessarily coming from like that ancient longing to live 300 years ago right and, the, and they, oh how much fun it would have been to like go on a buffalo hunt with a Lakota back in, in you know, right. 1700 or something. You know, that was more the longing I had in my mind. But for a lot of people now, they're just like, yeah, I really am looking for a model to do my teaching in a different way. But you have different, different motivations, different desires. Some people want that real extreme radical piece of like, I want to yeah. be from the world and then others... You know, others just want to be able to get out with their kids and do something different around the campfire. Because you have a better grasp on that than a lot of people do. Some people even see the archetypes, but they don't necessarily know how to take their message to those archetypes. Um, yes. the, the, the reason I get frustrated with some of those is you get these hardcore guys. And now actually a lot of women are in this. Like, so when I was a kid, it was mostly guys in the program. Now most of our students are female. Yeah. It's an interesting shift. You get all these these guys and gals going hardcore in nature, giving up society and then complaining about the people in society. Yeah. And then I'm sitting here like, well, when you tell people that you need to do what you're doing in order to do what you do, they get turned off by that. So you're making my job harder. <laughs> right, right. Because I then have to go explain to them, you don't have to be like them. You can do this at home. You can incorporate this into your life. Like I built a pond in my backyard. I, I've got a permaculture set up. So that's where I just get a little frustrated on all sides of that that discussion. But I think the the first thing that people need to start doing is getting out of the education by service mindset. Yeah. And I think it's it's been happening, especially with the pandemic. We're seeing an increase in video modules and video subscriptions. YouTube's saturated. And I'm like, and I think people need to start thinking about how else can we preserve and teach this without physically having to teach it because we still run into the same mathematical problem. And that's where I get fascinated with, with artificial intelligence, because we now have the opportunity to teach these skills, this knowledge, this awareness to an intelligence that's not biological. Right. And I don't think a lot of people grasp how quickly artificial intelligence can grow. I think until we solve the issue of it being biased by human behavior and, and biases, it's going to fail. But ChatGPT is a great example. It has the collective knowledge of anything on the internet, false or real. No human in history has ever had that. 
This is something, this type of learning is something that really needs to be leveraged in the outdoor industry. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.